0: Changing your life
1: one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark.
0: Hey, it's Amy Newmark and it's Friend Friday on the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Tax day is coming, so today we're going to talk about something that you might really want this coming weekend, and that is some wine. I'm going to introduce you to one of our story writers, Jennifer Simonetti bryan who has a story in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Time to Thrive, about how she completely rebooted her life and changed careers in a dramatic way and now is in the wine industry. So, Jennifer, welcome to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Thank
1: you so much for having me. This is a blast. I love doing stuff like this.
0: Well, good. So, Jennifer is the fourth woman and one of only 45 people in the U.S. to ever attain the international title of Master of Wine. It's the highest wine title that you can achieve in the world. It's a really, really big deal. We'll talk about how you become a master of wine. And she also has been honored with other industry awards, such as a trophy for her palate in 2008. She has five different wine and spirit certifications. She's written a number of really good books about wine. She did a whole five-DVD series on wine and spirits with The Great Courses, which has been an advertiser with us in the past. And she's a frequent guest on national television, including on The Today Show, on Fox, on Anderson Cooper, on Bloomberg TV. She's been on Real Housewives of New York City. She's been featured in Fortune Business Week, O, which is the Oprah magazine. She's been in Every Day with Rachel Ray. She's been in Wine Enthusiast, of course. So, Jennifer, let's talk first about how you got into this industry, which is the story that you actually told us in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Time to Thrive.
1: Yes. I didn't know if my story was going to really help people. I was I was hugely honored to be asked, and I thought, well, hopefully my story can help others out there. I was working in investment banking in London, so... Um, I, for those of you who don't know what it's like to be working in investment banking, um, there's a term called churnum and burnum, right? So I was one of these young uh, you know, college graduates coming out of school, and they, they, they worked you till it's like almost death, and they bring in the newbies. So I was there working from like 7 a.m., if not before, until past midnight every day. So that was, uh, I don't know if you know what that's like, Amy, but it was, uh, it was. I
0: know. Oh. I went to Wall Street right out of college also. Yeah. And I worked very long hours, didn't get a lot of appreciation, traveled all over the world on sales calls. And I've been on many, many investment banking road roadshows. I, I know. And then I was always the presenter. So the salesman would just be sitting there. You know, they had time to go to the bathroom, et cetera. And meanwhile, I'd be presenting over and over and over again. It's really tiring. It really is.
1: It really is. And so, I—I I don't know if it was because I had done like a month straight of work where I had like less than four hours a night of sleep, but I was like at the end of my rope. And I think this was like in 1999, and someone had said to me at some point, "Well." don't worry, Jennifer, after you pay your dues in about 10 years, you'll be fine. And I got, Oh my God, like I am not spending the next 10 years of my life doing this. Like I'm going to prematurely age myself. I'm going to give myself gray hairs by the time I'm, you know, by the time I'm 25, actually I was older than that, but, um, I was so, uh, so burnt out even at a, a fairly young age. And, um, so, There was this one business launch I was invited to. And this was like one of the rare times that they let us out of the office, you know. So we were, have you been to London, Amy? Have you?
0: Oh, oh yeah. My father used to have a house there. I've been there many times.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So if you know where the Tower of London is, they, there's the, what is it, the HMS Belfast that's right there across from the Thames up on the Tower of London. And then there's a place called Hayes Wharf. And that's where my work slash prison used to be. And um, as I was there, there's also a uh, executive dining room facility. And every once in a while, they would let us you know, peasants come and put our presentations before clients in the executive dining room. And as I was there, there was an herb-crusted salmon and a serre. Now this is London, so you you know what it's like. You're allowed to drink wine at lunch in Europe, and. Um, in the United States, if you have more than a Diet Coke, you know, they, they look at you kind of funny. So you don't have wine in, in the States, or at least you didn't back then. But I was allowed to have some white wine. So Sancerre is a white wine from the Loire Valley of France. Very crisp, very light. And it wasn't the wine itself. Now, I knew nothing about wine. Do you know anything about wine, Amy?
0: I do. I do. My, um, my husband comes from a wine family. They owned oh, a wine really? importing business. Yeah.
1: Wow. Oh, wow. So you knew you knew more even than I did back then because all I knew was Rio Nitti because that's all my family ever drank. So and if if it was over eight bucks a bottle, you know, my family said it was too special to open. So um, I knew less than nothing about wine, and it wasn't that this wine was so amazing. It was just the pairing of this crisp light white wine with this salmon now salmon is a very fatty fish and uh, it coats your tongue in an oil and the high acidity from the sauvignon blanc from that sancerre which is uh, the wine it just cleansed. it created this cleansing sensation and the the flavors just really come Complimented each other and contrasted. And it was like an explosion went off. And I don't know if it was sleep deprivation, but I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. I don't know. if Have you ever had one of those experiences of food and wine pairing where it just blown you away?
0: You know, what's so funny is that this seems so obvious to you that people could be blown away by this experience, but it just shows that you were meant to become a, a wine master or a master of wine. You were meant to be this because because you reacted to this as strongly as I used to react to a beautiful income statement when I worked on Wall Street, where it all tied out together at the end. I'd be like, this is a thing of beauty. But for you, the thing of beauty was the salmon with the wine. And then I understand that you thought, well, then I'm leaving Wall Street. So tell us what happened next.
1: So as I'm there and remembering what someone had said, you know, pay your dues in 10 years, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I got to learn a little bit more about this. So I didn't want to take any stuffy kind of classes. So I took the Philip McGregor School for Wine. um, That was in London. And I think there was only six of us in the class. And I think this guy was drunk the entire time. But it just sparked something in me in terms of I want to know everything about wine yesterday. And then um, I moved back to the States. I was still working for a Citibank or Citicorp at the time. And I moved back to the States and I went to the Windows on the World Wine Tasting School with Kevin's Raleigh, which is on the top of the Twin Towers at the time. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so in. I'm so in. And it, trying to explain this to my family where I'm like, yeah, I know I'm making six figures, but I'm going to quit my job and go work for a wine store in Greenwich Village. And I thought, you know, my family is just going to think I've lost my mind. Um, in fact, I remember my mom um, looking at me and talking to me is like, are you okay, honey? Are you an alcoholic? I'm like, mom, no, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm just interested in learning about wine because there's no one in my family that's even remotely interested in wine. And so I did it. I quit my six-figure salary and went to go work for a wine store in Greenwich Village called the Burgundy Wine Company. But I never stopped learning. So I continued taking wine classes wherever I could. I was insatiable. I just needed to know more. And then someone mentioned something called the Master of Wine. Now, it's not like a uh, a master's degree, like uh, for a masters in business, it's a title, an international title. That it's all independent study, so um, it's kind of like the Olympics for wine. So if you get in, then it's a four-day exam, and in those four days, you have to identify, you know, great variety where it's from the quality level, all that kind of stuff, and give arguments for it for 36 wines. So I had to taste 36 and identify 36 wines blind. And um, then, of course, it was days of essays. And if you pass that, it's like a 10% pass rate, then they make you write a dissertation, a research paper. And that all came about in 2008. So knowing nothing about wine to becoming the fourth woman in the in the country to achieve this title, it was eight years.
0: That's incredible. So we put that story in our Time to Thrive book because our Time to Thrive book was about people either finding time to thrive in their days to pursue their passions, like wine, or mm. saying, hey, it's finally my time to thrive. I'm going to chuck that career that I don't like or chuck whatever it is that I don't like, and I'm going to pursue what I want. And you were such a great example of somebody pursuing her passion. And you are so passionate about wine. and and. The way I met you, I remember, was at a Renaissance weekend, and uh, you were presenting about wine, and I was so impressed, and that's I started talking to you after your presentation. Was that the one with jelly beans? Yes, you had jelly beans. You were helping us understand wine tasting by having us taste jelly beans. Exactly. You were doing that.
1: It was so funny because before that presentation, um, I was like, okay, so where's the wine? And they're like, oh, well wait, wait, what do you mean wine? I'm like, oh, my God, you have no wine for me to, have to go get jelly beans and go present wine on jelly beans. So uh, that presentation was a lot more off the cuff than uh, than you might have thought. So um, it was... But it... people.
0: I had no idea. I thought you always taught wine tasting using jelly beans. I had no idea you were improvising.
1: That was it. That was my first time and my last time ever of presenting with jelly beans. But it it does teach people how, I mean, we also did it at what? Ten o'clock in the morning, so uh, it was before lunch, and I think teaching people how to use their palate. Um, I recently did a TED talk, and it's amazing how we really don't pay attention to our palates, our sense of smell, and our sense of taste. And it's one of the things that you have to use if you're going to be tasting wines at the at the level of being tasted on thirty six wine blind. So increasing your perception. It's really important and um, it's it's a physical part of it. But yeah, jelly beans was like that precursor, just getting people engaged with it.
0: I thought it was a great idea. And now I want to ask you one other thing. This is a little bit changing the subject, but I have always been such a big fan of wines made in Sonoma and also Mm. Napa. I, you know, try to drink a lot of American wines and Mm. I was so, you know, so devastated watching the fires there. Last year, and, you know, even wineries that I had visited, I was obsessively following the fires online and checking on my favorite wineries because I used to go out to Sonoma very frequently to visit Mm -hmm. my favorite wineries. So what's going on out there now, and how is that whole fire situation going to affect production going forward for wines in Napa and Sonoma? Well,
1: um, there were some vineyards that were just, absolutely devastated and, you know, they have to go replant and, and, you know, you can't just plant a grapevine and then next year have fruit and make wine. It's it's a long process. So some, in some cases you had 30, 50, 90 year old vines that just went up in smoke, literally. And as a Vine ages, just like people, you know just as we age, we get we get more wisdom, right? Well, it's the same kind of thing with grapevines. the The more that a grapevine ages, the more robust flavor and the less they produce. So it's almost like akin to like when you're a teenager, you got all this energy and you're running around, but you may not give your highest quality work as opposed to when you've learned some skills and you learn some patience and all of that, you get, you know, you give more quality work. So that's kind of the things with, with grapevines and they had to start all over again and some of them. And so they planted, and this is year one for, in order to get wine, you have to wait at least three years before you get grapes to use for wine. And that's not even really all that high quality wine. So when you're looking at Napa and Sonoma, you're you're looking at least until year nine or year 10. So it, it, that's how devastating those fires could be. But to answer your question about production um, for that year, it depends on when the grapes were picked. If the grapes were picked while the smoke was in the air, you're actually going to pick up the smoke taint in the wine. You can't wash it off. There's n- nothing you can do about it. I tasted some wines from Oregon, um what was it, back in 2008 and they had some some fires back then and um you can literally taste it in their
0: some of their Pinot Noirs. That's going to be a big deal then for you masters of wine and you other, you know, professional tasters. You're going to be able to probably discern whether a wine was made with yes. grapes that were exposed to the smoke or not.
1: Yeah, it does literally taste like someone dips some liquid smoke into the your grape glass or your wine glass. So, which is um, in a Cabernet Sauvignon, when they're big, robust wine, that might be a good thing. But for a Pinot Grigio, not so great. <laughs> you know?
0: That's going to be uh, very so, interesting. Uh, but yeah, that in a few years, is... we're going to be having new tasting yeah, notes setting. You know, not just cherry or blackberry or chocolate or coffee, but also smoky. Yes.
1: Yeah, some of them, not all of them, but but some of them. And some of them just decided not to make wine because they, they knew they were going to have this problem. And they just decided rather than, than create wine from this particular vintage, we're just going to, to let it go. Now, that's I mean, that's a huge loss for them um, in terms of, of money. I mean, because even every year for a winery, you you have to wait anyway, because when you're aging red wine, let's say, for example, you're waiting 18 months after you've put the wine in the barrel to age it before you're getting any money whatsoever, if you're thinking about it. So it's a a, a huge labor of love. Oh, yeah, it
0: definitely is. And I felt so bad for all of them because, I mean, they're farmers. That's what they are. It's not some kind of vanity business. This is a real business that people are depending on. So my heart was breaking for these people as I watched, and I'll be hoping that they do well and buying as many Napa and Sonoma wines as I can to keep supporting them in the next few years. Well, the great thing about all of this, and what no matter what period of time you look at, any
1: kind of catastrophe, there's always kind of this Phoenix experience, and maybe this is a literal Phoenix experience, where out of the ashes is going to come a new generation of vines and Growth and quality because even some of those grapevines, even if they are 50 years, or 50 years old or 60 years old, maybe some of them had viruses. And um, but the new vines that are going in won't have those, so you never know. It might be the best thing that ever happened to Sonoma. Oh, and gosh, Nava. I hope but so. I hope that's that. true. Yeah, but, well,
0: uh, Jennifer, thank yeah. you so much for joining us today, it was really wonderful to have you on after meeting you so many years ago it's been a pleasure to be on the show and everybody thank you for listening to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast today you can go to our website chickensoup.com to learn more about the book that Jennifer's story appeared in Chicken Soup for the Soul Time to Thrive you can learn more about Jennifer at jennifersimonetti.com and please come back Monday for an episode about gratitude and some very wise words